Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Cummins Podcast. This is Travel Cummins Podcast number 182, recorded Friday, December 10th, 2021. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Cummins Podcast. Yet more COVID changes and words we use for adventure. Coming to you today from the Travel Commons Studios in Chicago, Illinois, a couple of weeks since getting back from two weeks in the UK, a week in London, and then a week of hiking in southern Wales. We really had great weather, given it was the back half of November. Uh, yeah, it was brisk temperatures, but really more sun than we had expected. Certainly a bit windy when walking the cliffs above the Atlantic in Wales, but nothing we couldn't layer up for. And only one day of real rain. It was a lot better than the weather forecasts had led us to expect. The trip over and back was pretty uneventful. I'd hit American on a mileage sale back in March for direct flights between O'Hare and Heathrow. We flew coach on a 777 that was pretty empty on the way over. People were popping up the armrests in the four-seat center sections and laying down to sleep. One guy even built a little tent out of blankets to cover his head. I'm, I'm not sure if he was, I don't know, trying to block out the cabin lights, or or maybe he was concerned that people walking down the aisles would breathe on him while he slept, even though mask discipline was pretty solid on this flight. Or maybe he wanted to drop his mask while he slept and didn't want to get called out by the flight attendants. I don't know. Whatever his deal was, it looked kind of weird. Now, I ate dinner on that flight, on that flight over, even though I'd eaten a Cubano sandwich at Tortas Frontera, which I've mentioned many times before, really my favorite restaurant in O'Hare. And I'd eaten that right before boarding. So I, I took the meal on the flight, not because I was hungry, but because it gave me an excuse to drop my mask for a little bit on what was an eight-hour flight. Rather than the replace your mask between bites and sips rules that I've heard on domestic flights this year, on my international flights over the past couple of months, most everyone takes off their mask for the duration of the meal. Now, I don't know if this difference comes from emptier planes, longer flights, uh, maybe the flight attendants are more senior, or that international flyers are just less likely to try and get around mask rules. And, and I have to say, purely from my own experience, I haven't seen any passenger pushback on masks on any of my international flights, whereas I was seeing and hearing a lot of it on domestic flights earlier this year. But whatever the reason is, I, I got to say that I appreciate the flexibility, I don't know, the pragmatism uh, for these long flights. Now, while the plane over wasn't full, I was worried about passport control when we got to Heathrow. You know, there's always a bit of suspense anyways as you make that long walk from the plane to passport control. Did a bunch of triple sevens just disgorge at the same time, let alone, I don't know, throw in a couple of big, massive A380s into that mix. Did the immigration force kind of botch up workforce scheduling and not have enough people to man all the booths? Will we flow smoothly into the immigration hall or will our march like suddenly stop short? Worse, will we smack into one of those Heathrow E-gate failures that's caused two to four hour queues over the past four months? We kept moving, but came to a sudden stop as we made the final turn, kind of the clubhouse turn toward the uh, toward the hall. 
Looking down the line, I could see the room wasn't jammed. Good sign. Looked like they'd paused us for a minute while they rejiggered kind of the cow pen, zigzag, tapes, lines, whatever. After a minute or two, we started moving again and at a pretty decent clip with almost everyone getting pointed to one of those automated e-gates. I walked up, put my passport on the reader, a camera box popped up mechanically, kind of adjusted, figured out where my face was, and then after what I assumed was some sort of facial recognition analysis, opened the gate and let me go to baggage claim. No, how long are you going to be in the country quiz, which I didn't miss, but also no stamp in my passport. I mean, how am I going to remember this trip for my next global entry renewal form? I don't know. Guess I'll have to do what I did for this past renewal. I'll have to make sure I drink a beer or two while in the UK so that it shows up on my untapped history that I'll use to fill out my next global entry form. So following up, Speaking of global entry, back in episode 180 at the end of October, I was still waiting for my renewal approval, and I was comparing my month and a half and counting wait time with the two-day wait time from listener Jerry Serfati. So fast forward, the day before we left for the UK, I got an email with the subject line TTP, which is Trusted Traveler Program, TTP Application Status Change, telling me to check the website for more information. Logging in, I saw that I'd been given conditional approval. So my wait time was about two months from submitting the renewal application. Now, I still had to do an interview, but if I was reading everything correctly, I actually had 12 months to get that done. So I looked to see if O'Hare had any appointments available the uh, the day we were flying back from London, but look, no dice. Uh, the earliest appointment was mid-December. Well, okay, I'll think about it later. Again, no rush. I got 12 months. But then the next day, I got another email from DHS.gov telling me about a new program, Enrollment on Arrival, where I could knock out my interview while in the customs immigration area coming back from an international trip. So perfect. Kind of going back to what I was planning to do, I actually get to knock out my interview coming back from London. So that Monday afternoon, after a quick pass through the Global Entry Kiosk, I went looking for Booth 58, which is where, according to the Enrollment on Arrival website, that was where the O'Hare interviews would be. But it looked like getting to Booth 58 meant standing in a long and growing line of non-U.S. passengers. Ah, you know, forget it. Again, I got 12 months to get this done. But the luggage carousel for our flight hadn't even started turning yet, so I, you know, I had some time to kill, went up to one of the customs officers and asked her. She immediately pointed me to a guy who was sitting in a booth completely on his own and completely in the opposite direction of booth 58. I was like, okay, so I walk over. There's one guy in front of me who's getting at the booth getting his interview. But by the time he was finished and then I stepped up to the officer, there was actually a family of four behind me and then two other people behind them. The interview only took about five minutes. The guy said, OK, that's it. You're, you're good. I walked out and guess what? Our luggage carousel still wasn't moving. By the end of the day, the TTP website showed my global entry was complete. I was good for another five years. I have to say full credit to DHS for coming up with ways to make global entry easier. <laughs> Just, you know, a minor quibble. I wish they'd keep their website locator up to date. 
In the last episode, we talked about how last year's flurry of vaccination passport app announcements had pretty much turned out to be, in the words of Macbeth, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But American Airlines' partnership with Verifly, actually, I found it 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 does actually have a little something to it. I downloaded the app uh, before flying over to London, and after wrestling through what is not the most intuitive interface, was able to see a list of the UK's travel requirements and then validated that I had met them, first by uploading pictures of Irene's and my CDC vaccination cards and also our UK passenger locator form QR codes. I mean, that's nice, but actually what was better was when we checked in for our American flight, all we had to do was show the agent the green all good screens for Irene and me on Verifly and we were done. None of that fishing out the right forms and holding them up to the Lucite screen. Two swipes on the phone, and we were done. Now, again, nothing earth-shattering, but it does relieve the friction out of that one part of the journey. A recurring topic on the Travel Commons podcast is the inexorable move to a cashless society. And certainly the pandemic accelerated this with the push toward contactless transactions. Nobody wanted to handle your possibly infectious cash. On our first day in London, I stopped at the first ATM I saw to pull out 100 pounds just to have some cash in my wallet. We've talked about this before. I'm a bit old school in that way. And I'm glad that I did it because once we left London and we're staying in small towns in South Wales... It was surprisingly tough to find an ATM, and this shouldn't be that big of a deal. With everybody taking cards and also with contactless, be it a contactless card or on the phone with Google or Apple Pay, it does away mostly with the need for a PIN or even to sign anything. But in Wales, the parking lots at the base of our hikes, the pay and display machines, They weren't taking my card, either contactless or physical. And by the time we were in our last town, Hey on Why, I'd run out of coins and I needed to find an ATM. Google Maps was no help. It kept pointing me to phantom machines and little grocery stores. Irene, though, had better luck in the tourist information center. The woman there gave us directions to what she said was the one remaining ATM in town, which surprised me a bit because Hey on Why has a good bit of tourist traffic with their book festivals. But anyhow, we found it and it worked. It had cash. Now, of course, then we had to find some place like a coffee shop that would take cash so we could break a bill and get some coins for the machine, which that requirement, the requirement to take cash, pretty much knocked out any of the usual chains. So walking down the street, I found a place that looked indie enough. The sign said coffee shop, but it looked a little bit more like a thrift store. And when we walked in, it continued to look like a thrift store until we looked back into the second room and saw the coffee shop. Sure enough, the guy was happy to take cash, though he did have to pull out his wallet to make change. We've talked about Hertz's downward service spiral, which I forecasted in episode 164 after the bankruptcy filing. But since I haven't held back in slamming them for empty lots in Phoenix and San Diego and for incorrect fuel charges, I need to give kudos to the Hertz location in Cardiff in Wales for what had to be, hands down, the easiest and therefore best Hertz transaction I've ever had in Europe. Leaving London for the Welsh hiking part of our trip, we decided to skip the fun and excitement of driving in London and instead took a train to Cardiff and then drove to the coast from there. 
Now, the Hertz place was about a 10-minute cab ride from the train station in a bit of a, you know, I don't know, auto dealer row kind of looking thing. I walked in, showed the woman my Illinois driver's license. She asked me if I'd be okay driving an automatic. I mean, how fast can I say yes to that? Gave me a key, pointed me to a gray Skoda in the back lot, and it was done. No hard upsell on enhanced insurance or fueling options, just here's the key, have a good trip. And then returning the car, I pulled in after gassing up the car. The guy took a quick walk around it, had me sign his screen, and we were done. And then nothing wonky when I looked at the emailed receipt. I mean, it's sort of damning with faint praise that I'm so impressed when a transaction goes smoothly. I mean, it should always be this easy, but it rarely is. And hey, if you've got any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at TravelCommons.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter at MPeacock. Post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram account at Travel Commons. Or you can always post your comments on the website at TravelCommons.com. The first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is yet more COVID changes. I mentioned in the last episode that I was a little concerned about the logistics of getting COVID testing done by our second day in London. But as it turned out, it was fine. With a bit of Googling, I found Randock's big UK test firm offering click and collect rapid antigen tests for 25 bucks a piece. Give us a good reason, a destination for a walk on that first afternoon in London. It's always good to spend a lot of time in the sunlight on that first day in Europe. I find it's key to resetting my body clock. So it was a nice walk. We went, we picked up our tests, grabbed a little bit of lunch, came back to the hotel room. We ended up doing the tests in our hotel room the next morning. Yet more suspense, waiting those 15 minutes, hoping that second pink line wouldn't materialize, and then taking a picture of it in the Randox app and sending it off to get an all-clear email back. Now, of course, this was all pre-Omicron. That bombshell dropped the week before we flew home, which had me back doing rounds of Googling, trying to figure out what travel requirements were changing. The UK had quickly added pre-departure tests and shifted their day two testing back to the more sensitive, but three times more expensive PCR tests. But we were already in the UK. What mattered to us was getting back to Chicago. Now, the communications out of the US were, I have to say, a bit less clear. Mostly rumors, nothing official. The rumors were tightening the window on pre-departure tests, going from 72 hours to 24 hours before departure, which would have been a problem for us. We'd already done the Abbott rapid antigen tests we'd brought from home Saturday afternoon before our Monday morning departure. And then in addition, the rumors said they were looking to add post-arrival tests, kind of similar to the U.K., But I have to tell you, the worst rumor that I saw was that they were thinking about requiring a seven-day quarantine once you landed in the U.S., even if you had a negative test. Lucky for us, none of these U.S. rumors came true, at, at least by the Monday morning of our flight. 
It wasn't until later in the week that the new rules were announced, and quite honestly, it seemed that some folks had come to their senses a bit. The only rumor that actually came true was that tightening of the testing window down to one day. Well, that and extending the airplane mask requirement to March 2022, but as I said back in September in episode 179, I don't think that was a surprise to anybody. But going to a one-day testing window just reinforces the case for bringing a rapid antigen test with you. Now, the only caveat is, is that the test has to be done in concert with a telehealth call to validate that it's actually you doing the test and the results are really negative. Now, coming home from Italy and from the UK, Irene and I use, as I just mentioned, we use the Abbott Binax Now tests with telehealth sessions from EMED. Now, depending on how many you buy, a two, a three, or a six-pack, the cost per test ranges from 25 bucks to 35 bucks, which I have to tell you is pretty competitive with the prices that I saw for airport same-day testing services, and it's a hell of a lot more convenient. Though, as I recommended in this year's Traveler's Gift Guide, some sort of smartphone tripod comes in handy when the EMED guy wants to watch you swirl the cotton swab in your nose and then insert it into the test kit. I'm not sure how you'd get all of that done one-handed. Now, I hate the term new normal, but perhaps, at least for the near term, we have to start thinking about these last-minute changes or rapid changes in COVID restrictions kind of the same way we think about storms, terrorisms, strikes. You work to avoid them, but you got to be flexible and agile enough to deal with them if you get caught. Now, no analogy is perfect. Back in episode 150, I told the story of how a bomb threat on the train line into Paris caused us to miss our flight home. It's a lot easier to accept a couple of bonus days in Paris than an unplanned quarantine week in an airport holiday inn. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is words we use for adventure. Look, we know that words impact the ways we think, feel, experience things, including travel. Now, Josh Glenn, a Boston-based author and semiotician, semiotics is the study of signs, symbols, and language, and how they create meaning. So Josh has just published a book, The Adventurer's Glossary, with some 500 words associated with adventure. And since going on an adventure often involves travel, I wanted to talk to Josh about his book and how the words that we use to describe adventure can affect how we think about travel. Josh, how do you read the Adventurer's Glossary? You know, it's an alphabetical list of words, terms, and and they're not quite Oxford Dictionary definitions, really kind of more stories than definitions. Should I start at the top? Oh, Dark Hundred is the first entry and work my way through or just randomly kind of riff through the pages and open it and put my finger down and read something? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a capricious decision to alphabetize all these terms because that just completely puts them out of order. So all of the travel terms are not together and all of the military terms are not together. And the stuff I got from hip hop or gaming culture or adventure literature, none of them are grouped together. It could just be something you pick up and randomly browse through. It's absolutely okay. However, as much as possible, I did try to edit it in such a way that if you were, were reading it from beginning to end, 
it would kind of make sense in that direction as well. So if there's a little bit of beginning to end stuff in it, but really it's, yeah, read it randomly. <laughs> How did you choose which words to include? I mean, it's a pretty wide ranging list. You've got bottle, hair, stoic, as long <laughs> as stuff that I would normally associate with adventure like bug out bag and Rome and Voyager. This is the third glossary that I've done. I did one back in 2008 called the Idler's Glossary, which was all about basically how much I hate having a regular job. And, and I enjoy sort of doing things that look like, like you're doing nothing from the outside, but actually it might be very rich and deep what you're doing. And then I did another book called the Wage Slaves Glossary, which was about how much I hate my job. And I was working at the Boston Globe at the time, actually a job I kind of liked, but I just don't like having bosses. And it was sort of just all about the horrible jargon of the workplace. Basically, th these are topics that I've been interested in for many, many years. And I just started gathering words as I, I also read a lot of adventure novels and watch a lot of adventure movies. So sort of gathering words that occurred to me over time. But then I also do really nerdy things like literally sit down and read through a slang dictionary or pick up a, a thesaurus and go look up the definitions and the etymology of every synonym for a certain word. So to kind of list balloons, and I think there's something like 500 words in this book. So Josh, when we think about adventure, I mean, adventure often involves travel. Do you think that the language or the words that we use to describe adventure, do they impact our expectations of how we travel? The language of our culture helps shape and guide the way we are able to perceive and think about anything, including adventure and travel. We can't think outside of this kind of structure of language that we have. I mean, an adventure is, and that word comes from the Latin meaning to arrive unexpectedly. That's actually a really important sort of philosophical piece for me as I was going through this. The idea that you can have a trip as not an adventure if nothing unexpected happens, and if you don't take enough risks to allow things unexpected to happen. So when I think back to kind of the amazing road trips I took when I was in college with my friends around the country, it's all kind of a blur. I don't really remember a lot of specific details, except when something went wrong. When we broke down, you know, in the middle of the highway on a mountain in Colorado, and we had to go to a small town and have people there help us get parts and, you know, explore that town and meet the locals and almost get beat up, et cetera, et cetera. That's an adventure. Something unexpected happened, and it's very, very memorable, right? And those are the, those are the memories that you cherish later. Well, I think that's that's probably where travel stories come from, are more of the things that you didn't expect, more of the hiccups. Yeah. God only knows on this podcast, most of the stories that I'll tell have come from things that went sideways, not things that went well. Yeah, it's so interesting to think more about how that's really baked right into our language. So, for example, the word chance comes from the Latin cadencia, meaning falling. So just when we think about how we use the words of like, let the chips fall where they may, or something befalls you, right? This idea of having our feet off the ground, falling through space, we can't grasp anything. You know, what do you do with that? If you're someone who likes in some kind of existential way, that feeling of falling, then you're an adventurer. You know, you're going to get more out of your travel experiences than someone who wants everything to be go exactly the same way every time and you know never have any hiccups. In a prior episode, we talked with Emily Thomas, philosophy professor at Durham University in the UK, and she wrote a book, The Meaning of Travel. And one of the things that we got talking about was this idea of travel giving you a sense of otherness, so taking you out of your comfort zone and putting you in the middle of something different and then what you experience out of that, both from where you are as well as within yourself. And I think about that a little bit as you think about you're putting yourself into a potential adventure. You don't know where you're going. You're just 
putting yourself into a situation and figuring it out. I like how you're, you're saying put yourself into, uh, of course, another aspect of adventure is getting yourself out of the ordinary, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> getting getting you uh, out of that small town without getting your ass kicked, right? <laughs> yeah. Getting out of your routine, getting out of your small town, getting out of the kind of the spell that the quotidian everyday life casts on us is this kind of enchantment or bewitchment where you just want, you just expect everything to be the same all the time. And travel is one of the great ways, you know, historically traveling to other cultures and seeing the world, seeing how people live in other places. These are great ways to kind of break that spell of enchantment that the everyday puts on us. Josh, the act of travel has come under pressure of late. I mean, pre-pandemic, there was starting to see a thread of travel as perhaps a frivolous luxury that was killing the planet through carbon emission, global warming, uh, maybe overcrowding of specific places like, say, Machu Picchu or Angkor Wat. And now in the time of COVID, there seems another riff, which is travel is a selfish act because it hastens the spread of coronavirus around the world. You know, how do we square this? How do we square these concepts of travel being negative uh, with the need for adventure, that need for escape and the ability, therefore, to find yourself? Yeah, I mean, you can't entirely square. I do think that there's some truth to those criticisms, right? We shouldn't be spreading disease and we shouldn't be destroying the planet by unnecessary travel. But then the question is, what's necessary and how often do we do it? And maybe if you're somebody who travels 100 times a year, maybe that's too much. But maybe if you travel once a year, that's not enough. But I do think that for me anyway, during COVID, I, I didn't travel really at all outside of Boston, New Hampshire and Vermont. But I traveled widely through, you know, reading adventure novels, watching, you know, movies and Google streets where you can, you know, walk around inside the Sistine Chapel remotely. Now, of course, these are not as good. This is just the same as a Zoom call. It's not the same as being in the same room with someone. It's not, it's not as soul nourishing. You don't get as much out of it. You're not really experiencing the whole context, you know, that you get when you travel. But, you know, you can have sort of armchair adventures to some extent that help yeah. square that circle. But, yeah, there's no right answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, as you think about the Adventures Glossary, how people should think about it, take it, enjoy it. You know, I hope that Word Nerds will enjoy it just on its own merits. However, there is kind of a secret philosophy woven through this alphabetized list of words, which is this idea that adventure is something that we should seek. We should try to break out of the ordinary and see things in a new way and expand our horizons, whether it's through actual literal travel or other ways. And that there are certain qualities that we need to cultivate in ourselves to be good adventurers, whether that's a sense of humor, whether that's, you know, wit, whether that's, um, you know, courage, uh, grit, and so forth. Uh, these are all the kinds of things that I've tried to express through this book, which from the outside might just look like a fun, you know, slightly uh, frivolous uh, word nerd book. Super. Josh, Josh Glenn, thanks very much for joining us on the Travel Commons podcast. We'll put a link to the Adventurer's Glossary so uh, people can find it for you. Thank you for having me and, and happy travels to all your listeners. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's it. That's the End of Travel Comments podcast number 182. I hope you all enjoy the show. Hope you decide to stay subscribed. You can find us and listen to us on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. You can ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. Check out the show notes on travelcommons.com for a transcript and links. You can also click on the link in the episode description in your podcast app to take you straight to the show notes. And if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving us a review on one of the sites? Or better yet, tell somebody about Travel Commons. Really appreciate any of that uh, word of mouth that you can give us. If you're not subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There are all sorts of buttons and links and menus that'll let you uh, subscribe to Travel Commons through any of the main podcast sites. And at the bottom of each page on the website, you'll find links to all the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along, text or audio file to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com and Peacock on Twitter. Write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or Instagram or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. And thanks to everyone who has taken the time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And for everybody who's traveling, safe travels on this holiday season. Hope you get to see your families. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, all the holidays you celebrate. I hope you have great ones. And until we talk again in the new year, take care and thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now.